Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. I'm most indebted for your very kind invitation to be here. I'm from New York, so I'm naturally loud. <laughs> My parish is on East 30, West 34th Street, and you have to be loud with all the fire engines and everything. My parish includes the Central Post Office, Macy's, uh, the Empire State Building, and Penn Station. Uh, and if you go any farther west from my rectory, you're in the Hudson River. <laughs> I think I know some people here already from the EWTN. I often remark that on the television I'm in color and in person I'm in black and white. <laughs> That's not the uh, mystery I want to speak about tonight. I'm speaking about Advent. But coming to Virginia gives me a little dose of civility to take back <laughs> to New York. I'm a great fond, uh, a very fond of Anthony Trollope, the Victorian novelist, wonderful satirical novels, and the BBC has done some wonderful uh, films based, uh, based on the Trollope novels. His mother was a novelist. She brought the children. Uh, to the United States and started a dry goods business in Cleveland, Ohio. And she worked her way back to England, but she wrote a book on the domestic manners of the Americans. And the basic thesis was that there are no manners. <laughs> but um, she made enough money to put the children through school. She did visit the Capitol. Now, this was about 1840. She was in the Senate, and she noticed that the senators were all wearing hats except two. She asked the usher why those two were not, had their heads cover, uh, uncovered. And he said, well, you see, ma'am, they're from Virginia. They are the gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I, we talk about uh, Advent as though it's sort of a little rite of passage to Christmas, but we have to remember it's the most important, in many ways, the most, a most important time of the year because it focuses us on four deep mysteries without which we don't understand why we uh, live. And when we speak of a mystery, we have to remember we're not talking about a puzzle. We instinctively talk about a mystery book. And a mystery book is really a puzzle book. You have to find out who done it. But a mystery in, in the faith is a deep truth. It's not a puzzle. It's accessible to reason, but it has to be helped by 
the Holy Spirit. Advent is the time in which we pay special attention to these mysteries and we examine our conscience and ask ourselves, have we really thought about these in, uh, in Advent? Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. I preach on those every Sunday. Uh, and next Sunday, I'm going to give my congregation uh, hell. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, I don't need Advent to do that. <laughs> but unless we understand these mysteries, we will never understand why God came into the world at Christmas. I mentioned that Macy's department store is uh, right up the street from me. Their Christmas display just has a big electric sign that says, Believe. And this is a very good thing. Believe. But it can also be a very bad thing if you don't complete the sentence. Well, we can believe a lot of things. You know, Alice, when she was in Wonderland, the White Queen said that she believed three impossible things each day before breakfast. To believe is not credulity, it's not wishful thinking. Uh, repent and believe the gospel, says the church at the beginning of Lent. To believe is to trust in God. But just as a child, has to be taught how to trust what is trustworthy, so we have to be able to trust God. Otherwise, we begin believing anything. One of our great writers, Chesterton, said when somebody loses the faith, they don't stop believing, they stop believing in anything. And so we are living in a very superstitious age now. We're worshiping many kinds of false gods. And we're tempted to even follow political leaders who want us to believe that they're messiahs. So we have to know what we are uh, believing in. Now, when we speak of heaven, as we do in this week of Advent, we're speaking of the ultimate reality, not wishful thinking. And we often use the term uh, believing in life after death. It's not a question of believing in life after death. It's believing in life after life. Death is not the finale. Death is the gateway to deep, deep life. We have intuitions of that every day. I now, uh, perhaps because I'm neurotic, I cannot rest in a room if I see a crooked picture on the wall. <laughs> I have to go and straighten this. Uh, why? Well, maybe because I am neurotic about that. <laughs> but basically, we have a sense of balance. When you're going to some special festival or wedding or that, why do we put on special clothes? Why do we polish our shoes and so on? Not everyone does these days. Uh, why? Because it is special. What does that mean by special? We are really citizens of heaven. And we are now on mm, pilgrimage there. Uh, when St. Paul 
uh, speaks of Kevin in his second letter to the Corinthians. He said, I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Most theologians think that St. Paul was speaking of himself. He was just too modest to admit it. But what does it mean to be caught up in the third heaven? It means to be given this experience of our eternal destiny of heaven. St. Teresa of Avila said all the way to heaven is already heaven for those who love the Lord. Uh, as a codicil, we can say all the way to hell is already hell for those who do not love uh, the Lord. Our Lord himself emptied himself, um, as says uh, the letter to the Philippians, and took the form of a slave, but he emptied himself of, uh, of heaven. And that's why in all the parables he tells, he's talking about heaven one way or another. He's giving us these clues. I wrote a book on the parables this last year. I called it Hints of Heaven. That's what the parables are all about. Uh, when, when Jesus says about divorce, uh, Moses gave you this law for the hardness of your heart, but from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning. He's about 30 years old, 33 years old, max, when he says this. How did he know? Well, he was there. The Alpha and the Omega. You ask a little child, how old are you? They'll say, I'm four and a half, or I'm four and three quarters. Uh, a child has a different measure of time. <laughs> Ask God, how old are you? I am the Alpha and the Omega. Our Lord says, I've come that you might have joy, and your joy might be full. Well, joy is heaven. And to have the fullness of joy means that we have to first of all understand what it means to be. And it is only the I am, who is the source of all life, who can explain that. We have three kinds of good feeling. First is pleasure, sensory pleasure. We can take pleasure in many things, good and bad. We learn the hard way if they're bad. But we also learn quickly that sensory pleasure is not a guarantee for happiness. So we move into that second mode. Happiness is a spiritual contentment, but it's a contentment in the moment. I have estimated that within about a five block radius of my parish, there are almost 300 bars in hotels and along the street, and they frequently offer happy hours. but only ours. That's the important thing. <laughs> Sorrow cometh in the morning. <laughs> so we move from pleasure to hap through happiness to what else? Joy. And that's what our Lord gives. And that's what is the animus, the, the spirit 
the motive, the experience, and the evidence of the saints. Uh, when a saint is going to be canonized, the essential question is, was there joy? Was there joy in that saint? A saint could heal lepers, start hospitals, build schools, do all kinds of good things. But without joy, the ultimate identity of heaven is not in that soul. One of my great saints is John Henry Newman, and he's now beatified. We're waiting for him for a second miracle so he can be canonized. The Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, when asked why it took Newman so long to produce a miracle, has said, well, you must remember that Newman was an Englishman. <laughs> and the English tend to think that miracles are sort of twisting God's arm. <laughs> but a visitor to Newman, Baron von Hugel, who was a German emigre, he wrote in English, but he wrote English as though it were German. And he was a rather dour man himself, very different from Newman said he did not think that Newman was a saint because he visited him three times. And each time, Newman seemed depressed. And an Irish writer some years later said, it never occurred to Baron von Hugel uh, that the only three times on record that Newman was depressed were the three times he was visited by Baron von Hugel. <laughs> So we can have influences to, for good or for evil. But I'll tell you one thing. I have had the great privilege of being in the presence of saints. Most of them are not canonized. And that doesn't matter to God. He knows who the saints are, but some are. I used to serve mass for, as a student, a seminarian for John Paul II. I worked off and on nine years with Mother Teresa, and you never felt sad. Never felt sad in their presence. I could write so many books, certainly about Mother Teresa. We know what interior suffering she had, but that made the joy all the more vivid. Because joy is not mere pleasure. It's not mere happiness. It's being happy with God. And when you're happy with God, all the bad things that happen in this world are quite irrelevant. They're real, and they are experienced, and they are trials, but they do not diminish that gift of true joy. I mention this because while we have been meditating on heaven, this last week of Advent before Christmas, we will be talking about a hell. This is rather poignant for me because my parish neighborhood is called Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> Long before I got there, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and I hope eventually to make it Heaven's Kitchen. <laughs> but it, uh, you can imagine what it did to deserve that name. Now, you must remember when St. Paul speaks most vividly about things of heaven, the one quotation I gave you from 2 Corinthians, 
But he's writing to people who are living in a city, a major city of the Roman Empire that made uh, Las Vegas look like a Methodist strawberry festival. <laughs> the, the Romans didn't want to go there. Or they did want to go there, but they didn't want to tell their wives. <laughs> this is where one of the places where St. Paul planted the church. And this is the place uh, that he addresses most vividly about heaven. And in his first letter, he says, I has not seen, nor hath ear heard, nor has it so much dawned on man what God has prepared for those who love him. We must remember when we pass through bad times that the light of Christ becomes the most vivid. You don't really notice a candle in a brightly lit room like this, but you turn the lights out, that's when you see the candle. So when things seem bad, you know the light of Christ is real. What does St. John say? The light shines in the darkness. Then he says the darkness has never overcome it. And this is the source of our hope. Hope is not optimism. I used to belong to an optimist club. These were very nice men. Every Wednesday we would get together and we would recite a thing saying that even if it's raining, the sun is shining someplace and all that. It was, up, it was uplifting, but that's, you know, we have undergarments that are uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that is not the virtue of hope. In Ireland, the difference between a pessimist and an optimist, an Irish pessimist says, you know, things could not possibly be any worse than they are now. But an Irish optimist says, oh, yes, they can. <laughs> so, and you, you can get rather depressed, of course, if you don't understand that, and then you look at the news every, every day. Terrible things that are going on. Well, there's nothing new about, about that. And it is in those dark times that our Lord is uh, making most vivid his grace. It's in those times that the saints become most alive. It was on the 9th of December in 1565 that Pope Pius V fifth died, December 9, 1565. That's almost to the day, give or take a few days, 450 years ago. Everything seemed dark. Europe was in disarray. The economy had uh, fallen apart. The papal states uh, were corrupt. There was tremendous corruption. Uh, within the church. Barbarians were still eating again, as they had done some 1,100 years before, at the edges of uh, civilization. There had been a deep disappointment in the new world, for the explorers had said they had found this land of golden streets and so on, and it wasn't that way. Uh, they brought great things back, but they also brought bad things back. They saw great things there, but they also saw bad things there. 
and there was a, a kind of cultural depression. The church was split. Uh, some reformers threw the baby out with the bathwater and decided that they were reformers, they were deformers, what happened? You got the Protestant rebellion and chaos, which led then to political wars. And that was the scene when Pius IV was dying. And as he breathed his last, there were three at his deathbed. One was St. Philip Neri, who had come to Rome. He was called the new apostle of Rome. He re-Christianized Rome in many ways when Rome was losing the faith, concentrating on the young people. And then there was a man who was about, unbeknownst to him, to become uh, the next pope, Saint Pius V. We would not be here today without Pius V. He's the one who organized uh, the Venetian League, the Papal States, the Holy Roman Empire, and so on, to fight the Battle of Lepanto, uh, which saved Christian civilization from the Muslims for at least 80 more years. The third, by, well, not coincidentally, I wrote a book on coincidences. This was not a coincidence. The third was Charles Borromeo, uh, who happened to be a nephew of the dying pope. And he was made a cardinal when he was a teenager, or a little more than that. Nepotism means giving privileges to your nepotus, your, your nephew. In this case, it worked. Uh, <laughs> it worked almost too well. Uh, uh, Charles Borromeo up in Milan was such a great reformer that one of his priests, who didn't want to be reformed, tried to shoot him. And that's the state of things then. You see, we think things are bad now. But mark what was going on in that scene at the deathbed. These weren't just clever people, smart people, shrewd people. These were saints. It's the saints who make the change, and the saints become most vivid. They're Christ-bearers. They bear the light of Christ in the darkest of, of times. I just want to spend a few minutes talking about how this works out and more modern experience. I've recently written a book on the, the church in the Second World War many misunderstood aspects of the life of the church in the Second World War. We cannot begin to count the number of wars in history, but we would have to say that there was no clearer struggle between good and evil than in the Second World War. I mean, you cannot explain the bad guys without the devil the power they had, the hypnotic power they had over people, and the extreme cruelty they indulged. I'm reading a biography now of Napoleon, and of course those wars were severe, cruel in so many ways. But the Second World War was un unprecedented 
and on paralleled uh, scale. And we saw villainy in it, but we also saw uh, sanctity. And that's really what I want to just point out. I just want to talk about a few of these people uh, in the Second World War, who changed the world, not simply because they were uh, smart or powerful, uh, but because they were holy. And they knew those four mysteries of death and, and judgment and heaven and hell. We have an obligation as Catholic Christians to teach history. It's our DNA. Every tyrant in history has tried to erase history. Because when you erase the blackboard, you can put something else on it. And you can convince children that the heroes were villains and the villains were saints. And that's what's going on in our schools. I have a friend who teaches uh, philosophy at, at uh, Boston College and Harvard College. It goes back and forth. Uh, he was giving an introductory course to some uh, freshmen at Harvard College. Questions afterwards, one of the young students said, Professor, you keep calling it the Second World War. Was there a first? <laughs> They'd gone through grammar school, high school. They'd been admitted to college. Was there a first? My grandmother had two brothers who were killed in the First World War within days of each other in the Ypres salient. And she never spoke about it, but she knew that there had been a war. And they called it the Great War. And I could remember where, when my, my mother died going through the drawers and I found uh, a small Bible. And it, my, my grandmother was English. And it was one of my great uncle's Bibles. And it was given by the king, inscribed by the king to each of the soldiers to carry with him into battle. That's the only record I had of the experience of the Great War, which was supposed to be the war to end all wars. But if we don't understand our history, we will un not understand the creed. We will not understand the four mysteries of death, judgment, heaven, and hell. This is all part of our historical experience. When the creed says that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, the church doesn't recite this every Sunday to make Pontius Pilate feel bad. Uh, <laughs> we don't judge. That's up to God. There are a lot of theories of what happened to Pontius Pilate, by the way. We put that in the creed for history. It happened. It happened at a certain place. Just as at Christmas we will hear the birth narratives, when Caesar's, Augustus was in Rome with the emperor, all those other political figures, they're named for that very uh, same uh, reason. I think young people in large measure today are at a disadvantage because they don't have experience of earlier generations the way previous generations did. When I was growing up, everybody's grandma was home. And I learned all the old, so I, I mean, I know all the 
you know, Gilbert and Sullivan is not new to me. It was contemporary music to my grandma, and I, <laughs> I knew all, all those songs. The lore of the tribe is passed on by the parents, by the grandparents. Well, if we live in an age now in which that isn't always the case, the church has that function. As in the so-called dark ages, which have been exaggerated, they weren't as dark as they were, it was the church that preserved the learning. Uh, when the Roman Empire was in political disarray, it was the church that provided political stability. When the economies were fragmenting, it was the monastic orders that preserved the economy, farming, developing new methods of science, and so on. When we have a breakdown of the family, it's the church that must be the family. It's the church must teach history because if the church doesn't, the bad guys are going to. And they're going to teach anti-history. And instead of Christ, they'll teach anti-Christ. The communists were very good at rewriting history. The Soviet encyclopedia every year would decide non-persons and so-and-so, who was a hero in the previous encyclopedia, suddenly disappeared without mention, non-person. He was in a gulag someplace, if he was still alive. When the Poles were uh, suffering under communism, uh, the communists kept saying, we're going to have a five-year plan, a ten-year plan, this is the glorious future, and the Poles were wiser. And they said, under communism, the future is certain, it's the past that is uncertain. <laughs> and in our culture today, the past is uncertain. We have people rewriting histories. Again, as I said, the history, uh, renaming, taking down monuments for heroes because now they are uh, threats to a newer interpretation of the historical uh, narrative. In the Second World War, my father was... Uh, in the Merchant Marine in the South Pacific, North Africa, and on the Murmansk run. He was one of the few survivors of the Murmansk run. He never spoke about those. When my father died, I opened a drawer, and there in the box were decorations from the President of France and the Chairman of the Soviet Union, thanking him for what he had done. He never talked about it because he had seen so many other men around him, him die. President Bush, 41, and President 43 uh, both came to my rectory on one occasion, and I read to them my father's ship log. It happened to be to the very day, I think it's the 60th anniversary of the shooting down of President Bush, 41, and uh, when he was rescued. My mother was, my was, mother was pregnant with me. And uh, for some reason, my father knew I was going to be a boy. They didn't have amnios and geezers then, but he, he had me named already. <laughs> my father's family was French, and he was Adolphe. Uh, but people didn't make a distinction between the French Adolphe and the German Adolphe. And uh, when I was born at that period, uh, Adolf was not the name to name your baby. <laughs> <laughs> so I was named George, my father's middle name. 
But I read to the president, the two presidents, one page, my father said, here in the North Atlantic, uh, we had uh, two German planes scrape our deck. We lost one Russian ship in the convoy, and we spotted two icebergs. But outside of that, everything's fine. <laughs> That's what we call the greatest generation. My, my mother's family is English, my father's family is French. I used to say there are two sides of the family got on famously in peacetime. It was uh, in wartime. It was only in time of war that they were at each other's throat. My father's ship, the Liberty ship, came into Port Newark, and uh, it was the first time he was able to see me on the ship. My mother took him on the ship, and I'm told that uh, an orderly changed my diaper. <laughs> so I at least I, I can say that I uh, I was on a ship in the Second World War. <laughs> Although it, in an inferior capacity. <laughs> the, uh, the book I wrote, Principalities and Powers, is called that because St. Paul says we are not struggling against things of this world, but principalities and powers from high places. We're always in a spiritual combat. And the only one who doesn't want us to know that the devil is alive is the devil. That's his strategy. He's always in camouflage, no surprise. He's the prince of lies. And it's the saints who are able to see through that disguise. The other week, we had that terrible massacre in Paris. The media did not pick up on the fact that in that concert hall, the band was it was called Kiss the Devil or something like that. And the song that was being sung was Let Us Sing the Devil's Tune, Let Us Dance the Devil's Dance. And those are the last words that those poor people were singing when they were killed. The orchestra fled, they were safe. And they expressed their condolences back in California. Saint uh, Martin of Tours, had an apparition of the devil. And they would look just like Jesus with a crown, slippers, and holding a, a, a rod, Christ the King. And the room got <coughs> filled with golden light. But Martin knew how to discern spirits. The voice said, I am Jesus, come back to judge the world and I have chosen first to appear to you. And Martin says, show me your hands. He put the hands out, where are the wounds? That's how Martin discerned the devil. The devil can come to us in, in our lives, in every generation, in the news every day, looking very much like uh, the king of the universe, except he will not bear our wounds. He inflicts our wounds. We have great saints, great martyrs today. It's been frequently observed that uh, the modern age has produced more martyrs than all the centuries of Christianity put together. I had the great privilege of knowing Cardinal Kung of China, who was 33 years in prison, most of it in solitary confinement. He finally was released when he had stomach cancer, 
and uh, having already been made secretly a cardinal in Tectore, John Paul II put the red hat on him. And in that case, that red hat meant something. I had lunch with Bishop Ping uh, of China. And I always regret this. I'm very ashamed of myself because as we were having lunch, he sort of kept slurping his soup. He was sort of, he wasn't using a spoon, he was just sort of slurping his soup. And I thought, gosh, this is a bishop. He should have better manners than that. <laughs> but then uh, someone told me he had been, again, 33 years in a communist prison and tortured so much he couldn't move his hands. I will not name the seminary, but the faculty then was, much of the faculty were a bit loose on uh, some of the doctrines of the faith. He said at the mass that he could have been released from that prison without serving one day, if only he had renounced the pope. But he said, no pope, no Catholic church. And he said that three times. And it seemed to me that the professors were sort of, you know. <laughs> uh, there again is a warrior in the spiritual combat. Both of those men, 33 years, the time our Lord spent on earth. Coincidence? Maybe. I don't think so. Cardinal Ventoine of Vietnam, the same experience. So many years in prison, much in solitary confinement. He gave a retreat, John Paul II, after his uh, release. And he said, we must remember that Jesus, with all his gifts, was a bad mathematician. Why? Because he said that one equals 100 and 100 equals one. The Good Shepherd says that one sheep is worth 99. Uh, this was not just theological speculation. He had lived that with his own life. Any number of people I, I mentioned in that little record in that, that book represent that same kind of vivid witness to the mysteries of the faith. Father Titus uh, Bransma died in Dachau. He had been a professor of philosophy at the University of Nimegen. And as he was dying, he gave his rosary to the SS doctor who administered the injection of carbolic acid. And that soldier was never the same again. In August of 1942, the Vatican deliberately broadcast in German a pastoral letter of Cardinal Feldhaber, Archbishop of Munich, attacking the German propaganda machine for trying to slander and intimidate priests. And at the same time, 120 Silesian priests in Poland were put to death by the Gestapo. In France, the Vichy, the puppet government of the Nazis in France, began to seize Jews. And Pius XII protested that. The Jewish Chronicle in London said that Catholic priests had taken a leading part in hiding hunted uh, Jews. In Dachau, there was a whole wing 
for priests, 2,579 priests. 1,785 of them were Polish, and only 816 are known to have survived. 20% of all the priests and bishops in Poland uh, were, uh, were killed. I love the figure of Bishop Felix Röder of Beauvais in France. Uh, the SS had taken over the town and required uh, that all the Jews in town report to the Gestapo office. We know what that meant. Uh, Bishop Röder claimed that he had had a great, 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 great <laughs> grandfather who had been Jewish. So the day of the registration, he put on his cope and mitre. He had an altar boy carry a cross in front of him, and he processed through the main street of town to the Gestapo office to turn himself in. And you can imagine the reaction of the Gestapo. That held off the registration at least for a short while. Uh, there was an auxiliary bishop in Paris, I love his name, Emmanuel Anatole Raphael Chaptel de Chanteloup, <laughs> 81 years old. And when the Jews had to put on a yellow star, he put on one. He died not long after that. And he was buried wearing the yellow star. In 1942, Pope Pius XII delivered a 40-minute Christmas address and the New York Times said, this Christmas, more than ever, the Pope is a lonely voice crying out of the silence of a continent. There are bad guys, of course, as well. In Slovakia, Monsignor Joseph Tiso became a cooperator, an agent of the Nazis, and so they made him the president of Slovakia. And he aided in the deportation of dissidents and thousands of uh, Jews. After the war, he was hanged, wearing his clerical collar. So not all were heroes by any means, but the heroes were conspicuous. There was a Jesuit priest, friend of uh, Cardinal von Hauber, Father Georg, he had been crown prince of Saxony. He relinquished his claim to the throne to become a priest. He had also ended his engagement to the daughter of the heir to the throne of Württemberg. In Berlin, he had been a protector of Jews and, and an anti-Nazi. One day, they found his body in the river, death by drowning, the Nazis said. But he had left a note in Latin, vado ad patrem, I am going to the Father. Uh, there is a new book called Church of Spies, uh, which really amplifies some of the material I wrote about uh, by Mark Reibling. And in that book, with access to Vatican archives and German archives, he now is able to explain how Pius XII had established a spy network from the Vatican, using counter-spies from the Wehrmacht, the German military intelligence, plotting the assassination of Hitler. 
Uh, this caused a certain moral conflict on the part of some theologians. Uh, you, are you justified in killing? But the Pope's point was, this is war. And Thomas Aquinas says, in extreme cases when somebody is a tyrant and killing multitudes of people, it is a moral obligation to kill him. Pius XII had uh, the Apostolic Palace bugged using the help of Guglielmo Marconi, the inventor of the radio. As a student, I answered a, a note one day from a lady who wanted someone to translate her diaries. I showed up at her palazzo on the Via Condotti, the widow of Guglielmo Marconi. She became like my grandmother. All this was going on unbeknownst to the public. This is now, the thesis of this book is why Pius XII deliberately did not mention the genocide by name or Jews by name after his first encyclical. The spies were saying, keep a very neutral profile. We don't want to disrupt what we're about. We know there are three major attempts on the life of Hitler and the Pope knew all about them. The Nazis maintained that Pius XII was depopped, Easter faint das Dritte Reich. The Pope is an enemy of the uh, Third Reich. Why then are some of these heroes now defamed? Well, what I was saying before, people don't know their history or are made to believe anti-history. There was a book called Hitler's Pope a few years ago, and it was based on other propaganda. 1963, Hakoch, a playwright in East Germany, wrote a book, a play called The Deputy, in which Pius XII was made to be a Nazi agent, a sympathizer. And now we know that that was funded by the Soviet KGB and the Stasi, the secret police of communist East Germany, to demoralize the Catholics in East Germany. And people picked up on that. And they began to believe it, and they don't want to hear otherwise. On the cover, the dust cover of the book, The, uh, the Prince, uh, Principalities and Powers, uh, there's a picture of a priest saying mass in Cologne Cathedral. The windows are broken, the cathedral's in shambles, and the Allied soldiers are attending mass with their rifles on guard. And I believe that the priest at the altar became the uh, Archbishop Hannon, the Archbishop of New Orleans. He had been a suffragan bishop in Washington where he got to be a good friend of President Kennedy and his wife, and he ended up preaching at President Kennedy's funeral. He was in the 82nd Airborne Division. He was a chaplain and a parachuter himself. In the 1980s, the U.S. bishops were putting together a pastoral letter on nuclear deterrent. But it was, a, I have to say, a quite an uninformed pastoral letter. At one point, Archbishop Hannon, he wasn't Archbishop, you know, he was Archbishop then. He lived to be I think, 99 years old, I think. He stood up and he said, I'm the only one here who fought in the war, and I just want to say, you guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I somewhat edit his remark. It was a bit, 
stronger than that. But we can look back at these times. You have to remember now we're going through this time again. The United States State Department doesn't want to use the term genocide for what is going on with the Christians in the Middle East. But there's not been anything like that in history. And much of our media uh, are silent. Our schools are silent. Many people cannot believe that these horrors are going on because they don't believe in the devil. Uh, there was, in the uh, Second World War, a Polish resistance fighter, a devout Catholic, Jan Karski, who was able to get evidence on the concentration camps. He was able, through the uh, exiled Polish government, to get in a meeting with President Franklin Roosevelt. He had an hour with President Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt didn't want to hear about the concentration camps. He changed the subject and asked about horses. Have the Germans taken the horses from the Polish people? Uh, Jankarski went to Felix Frankfurter, the distinguished Jewish Supreme Jurist, a court jurist. And Frankfurter walked around the room and told Karski, this is not so. Here's an example of a good man. Problem was, he, he thought everybody else was good. And later on, Frankfurter said, I didn't say he was lying. I said I couldn't believe him. And there's a difference. Well, you have to be maybe a Supreme Court justice to know the, uh, the difference. But that's, we live in a society today that's also in denial. In Lent, the church forbids us to deny reality. There is death, there is judgment, there is heaven, and there is uh, hell. Our Lord knew whereof he spoke when he taught us uh, these things. He's the only one who ever lived that we can say with absolute confidence we can trust. And we can trust him when he says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.